This is a CBC Podcast. And so at noon today, in this eighth month of our 98th year as a confederation, our new flag will fly for the first time in the skies above Canada. And in all On January 28th, 1965, Canadians Canada got a new flag, a maple leaf in red and white, a symbol of partnership between the English and French. Over the years, it's been hoisted by athletes, draped over the coffins of fallen soldiers, sewn on countless numbers of backpacks, a banner of national pride. Each time that Canadian women's team scored, Bernie, it was as if they were playing in the streets and cafes and bars all over Vancouver, and they made it. I'll never forget covering the 2010 Olympics, when the streets of Vancouver were a sea of red and white. Remember all those cute red mittens with the maple leaf? The flag has united us. And, and watching the Canadian women uh, hold up high a large Canadian flag with a gold maple leaf in the center instead of a red one um, was a sight to behold. Thanks very much for this. But its meaning shifted last February when the Freedom Convoy rolled into Ottawa. Encamped there three and a half weeks, they were anti vax, anti mask, anti Trudeau, and wrapped. Canadian flags. To them, flags fluttering from pickup truck windows represented one thing, freedom. That was a year ago, and now when you see a person flying the maple leaf, you can't be sure what version of Canada they're talking about. And that's not the only thing that's changed since the convoy came to town. I'm Duncan McHugh, and this is a hell of a story. Okay, it is kind of weird, actually. I haven't been down here much. Um, like an RCMP guy just drove by. <laughs> Stand here. I'm not breaking any laws. Okay. That's Kristen Nelson. She's standing on the main drag in Ottawa. I'm standing on Wellington Street right now, right in front of the Parliament buildings here in Ottawa. And by on Wellington Street, I don't mean on the sidewalk. I'm actually in the middle of the road. It's rush hour. You can't hear a single car. And that's because this piece of the road is still closed. Some called it the Freedom Convoy, others an occupation. They left long ago but this section of Wellington still isn't open to traffic. There are these large cement barricades um, blocking off a couple blocks here. Um, and there's, there's a still significant police presence. For a snowy day, there's not a ton of people, but there's, there's people walking by. Awesome, uh, what's your name? Andrea. What do you think about Wellington Street still being closed? I realized that it was closed, but it wasn't until I actually walked up and went, yeah, yeah, it's definitely changed. Do you think the city's changed since the convoy? The neighborhood in front of the Parliament Hill, yes. Yeah, it's just very different. Okay, what's your name? Sure, my name is Breton. And so, what do you think about the street still being closed a year later? Well, 
I'm glad it's still closed. I think that um, given what happened last winter, we shouldn't be just reopening it. But it's also one of the most beautiful things about this whole area is that people use the space. Like the lawn of Parliament, when kids like play soccer and stuff, there's something really beautiful about it, or even like the light show. This is obviously like a physical manifestation, yeah. but do you feel like the city's different a year later after everything that, that it went through with the convoy? I feel different about it. I feel like I've seen something that I kind of can't unsee or experienced it. Okay, you should know. Uh, Just last week, a city transportation committee recommended reopening Wellington. The federal government isn't on board for that. But this story isn't just about a street. The convoy changed the lives of the people caught up in the protest on both sides. Here's Kristen's documentary. Would you describe yourself as a political person before? Uh, Not before and I have been more involved since. Hi, my name is Kristen Bennett. Um, do I feel different? At a visceral level, I think I've lost trust in the system. Hey, my name is uh, Sean Burgess. I'm a resident in Old Ottawa South, and I'm also a assistant professor at Carleton University. My city, yes, feels different than a year ago, plus a little bit of extra polarization. Hi, my name is Zachary Boissonneau. I'm the owner here at A Foot Above Fitness. I'm more invested in being a better Ottawan and wanting to give back to the community that has welcomed me with open arms. So my name is Debbie Owusu-Echa, and I am one of four commissioners for the Ottawa People's Commission. Kristen, Sean, Zachary, and Debbie, four Ottawans who were there when the convoy rolled into town and who are still affected long after the trucks have left. To get a sense of what's changed for them in this city, I need to take you back to the beginning. We'll start with Zachary. Yeah, I've been in Ottawa, I'm gonna say my whole life. I went to school here, I've got a business here, I'm starting a family here. Like, So when the convoy was coming to town, then it was easy, it was an easy drive. We got there, how could I not go? from Parliament Hill. As you can see, trucks, tractors, even RVs lining the streets. So yes, I absolutely went down that first weekend. Walking up to it, like you could hear chants, you could hear music, and then once you got to the crowd of people, there was some guy giving out hot chocolates to everybody, and there were, there were granola bars and fruits and like everything. It was good to be around energy because we had been locked down for so long. How you doing, man? You want a cider? Just being around that hum of the crowd, the energy was was fantastic. I was around people who felt like me, who thought like me, maybe not identically, but at least we had lots of common ground. I had been very vocal too, and so there were people who recognized me who were like, oh, you're the gym owner, aren't you? Alan, the owner of a gym in Orleans has been fined four times last week alone for remaining open after fitness facilities were ordered to close. But he says he's going to stay open for the sake of his and his customers' mental health. My pandemic was pretty rough as a gym owner. I think everybody kind of understands how hard gyms were hit. It was very tough mentally. And then, of course, it was tough financially. There was a point where it stopped making sense to me, where it was, okay, well, if this pandemic is about people's health, then I should be open. There was nobody who wanted to hear what I had to say. There was a coalition of gym owners that we tried to lobby the government. That got dismissed really quick, too. So I stayed open. And yes, I got 
fines I've got. I've gotten personal fines. I've gotten fines against the business. And each of those nine summons carry up to $100,000 or a year in jail. And then for the personal fines, I believe it's the same as well. There was a point where I was being very much threatened with jail time if I kept my business open, as if I was some common criminal. And so when I heard they were coming, I was like, oh my God, maybe this is going to be it. We've spent two years where there has been absolutely no communication. The government's officials will not sit down with anybody who has any counter views, and maybe this is going to force their hand to have a discussion. Truckers and protesters remained peaceful well into the night, but as the scene got louder, the police presence grew. So we are in the parking lot on Coventry Road, just off of the freeway. We can go to this. This is the site, which is really the logistics center, the supply depot. As the anniversary of the convoy approached, I met up with Debbie Owusu Etja at that empty parking lot, about six kilometers east of downtown. A year ago, there were formal tents around here. You would have seen trucks that were decorated with all sorts of iconography and messaging related to the convoy occupation, driving off of the freeway into here. Um, you would have seen all of that happening here. While some distance from the scene that was unfolding around Parliament Hill, this parking lot not far from Debbie's home was just as important, if not more so, to the convoy. And it attracted some of the most hardcore supporters. This is the staging ground, and for people in this neighborhood, the same level of fear, and that conking continued over here too. There felt like a very big difference between the attention downtown to what was happening here. And for this neighborhood, there is a bit of a demographic difference. You know, we're talking working class immigrant communities who don't live downtown in a condo. And so a lot of people in this part of town felt forgotten. It felt like no one cared that their lives were being disrupted by the truckers, too. So Debbie stepped in. Um, you know, there were safe walks that were being organized. Um, there were mutual aid to ensure that those people who lost wages because their, their workplaces closed because they worked downtown. That was what I focused on, despite that visceral feeling of like frustration and anger towards the folks who were um, occupying here, who... Uh, felt that whatever their injustice was, was the most important injustice of the day. Um, and even just the the co-opting of certain movements and language from certain movements was frustrating. There were people who I knew that needed more support at the time. And um, I took whatever frustrations I felt about what was happening around me to make sure that those people were safe. And so that's why in the months after the trucks left, Debbie became part of the Ottawa People's Commission. A grassroots initiative to give voice back to the citizens who were dealing with the full brunt of the occupation uh, back in February 2022. This isn't the Federal Emergencies Act inquiry. It's a commission that was created by local residents looking for what they call healing and justice in the wake of the convoy occupation. Debbie and her fellow commissioners heard from dozens of Ottawa residents during a series of public hearings held last year. This is just a taste of what they heard. 
I use uh, mobility devices, so a four-wheeled walker and now a wheelchair, and I physically couldn't move around. Because of my health condition, masks are important for me, um, and so I suffered a lot of harassment. The so-called Freedom Convoy was definitely one of the worst experiences of our lives. The honking was just beyond the pale. Like It was borderline torture in our opinion. But trauma like what we experienced has given my health a knockout punch. I have test results that are objective evidence. A double lung transplant was now on the table. I still have a panic every time I hear a truck horn blow. So families expressed deep appreciation that we continued the vaccination clinic. They also expressed fear in coming to the center and that children felt scared walking the streets. They reported being shouted at and pushed on the streets because they were wearing their masks. It was exhausting and the impact is still being felt across the community today. Listening to their stories for Debbie, one thing is clear. We never want to go through this ever again. But for Kristen Bennett, the arrival of the truckers felt very different. We were quite excited. It was just nice to know that there were so many people, regardless of status, that just supported the freedom to choose either way and still be a part of society. It just felt like, like we're not just a little fringe minority. And it was just a big spark of hope. We just chose not to get vaccinated. Um, I'm a breast cancer survivor, very health conscious. I just found that there was not a lot of information about the vaccine. And then as more information came out about who was really affected severely by COVID was mostly elderly or people who were immunocompromised, which is no one in my immediate family. So uh, we just chose to wait. But it's still it's still just a feeling of like you're unwelcome or you're not wanted or you don't fit the bill. This time last year, we were homeschooling. I think the main intentions for us were just for the kids to be able to be kids and to not have to abide by these restrictions that were really quite hard on them. I think my kids, especially, again, my son, were struggling with having to wear a mask, particularly outdoors. So he just would come home and say, Mom, I can't breathe when I'm wearing a mask and I'm running in the yard. And it just kind of broke my heart. <laughs> so, yeah, um, for our homeschool was the art teacher, also the home ec teacher. So we did a baking day where the kids and I baked um, goods for the truckers and the kids wrote little messages for them, uh, just thanking them. Some of the par other parents were saying that the truckers were teary uh, and just so thankful. There's lots of people happy and smiling. Uh, you know, it felt like Canada Day on steroids. Uh, I know on the flip side, people were ashamed of the Canadian flag and ashamed that this was happening here. But um, for the people that supported the convoy, I think they felt really proud of their country. It just seemed so alien to everything that was about Canada. And when you drive around and you see Canadian flags, you think, am I seeing proud Canadians? Or am I seeing an anti-government, anti-Canada political statement? I met up with Sean Burgess on another street corner, just down the road from his place in Old Ottawa South. And right away, this conflict over the flag came up. And it happened while I was waiting for you. A truck drove, drove by with two flags on it. And first thing goes through my mind, have I been set up? <laughs> 
and am I going to get jumped, right? It was a pickup truck with two Canadian flags. And I shouldn't be thinking that. And that's, I think, the one that was really upsetting people. So at the height of the occupation, Sean set out to do something about it. I can finally do something to get my city back. And the big one, the really big one, I can finally get my flag back. So it would have been Saturday, I think it was the 12th of February. We're about three weeks into it now, and it, it was now totally clear. Nothing was going to happen. This is just going to keep going, and nobody's listening to us. Nobody's doing anything. So the, the, what I think ultimately happened was the people in the neighborhood just saying, enough is enough. We're going to have to do this ourselves. Sean and some of his neighbors caught wind that some of the convoy supporters were planning to drive downtown in their very own convoy on the third weekend of demonstrations. So he and a group of counter-protesters decided to use their own tactics against them. And I turned to my wife and I asked, so if I get arrested, will you bail me out? She's like, for this? Sure, I think so. Seventeen days into the convoy's presence here, increasingly frustrated residents taking matters into their own hands. If the police have a strategy, it sure as heck isn't obvious to us. Locals blocked the road and stood in front of cars all day long, keeping the convoy from making its way downtown. This is the exact corner where it started, <laughs> right here. <laughs> Old Ottawa South is just across the bridge. There's four or 5,000 people living there, most of them who were upset with what was going on. Yeah. So you just walked down here? Quite literally, yeah. And that's what a lot of them said. They woke up in the morning, they saw Andrew Harden's live feed. And they went, yes, I'm going to a protest. And they literally would drop their coffee, drop their breakfast, and they just came. So we're standing there, and the cop shows up. And the cop's doing his job. It's fine. He's a nice guy. He's like, it's illegal to block the road. And we're like, yeah, and why haven't you arrested people downtown? The police had no moral authority anymore. Bylaw had no moral authority. Welcome to Ottawa, stay as long as you want. On Parliament Hill, no one seems in a hurry to leave. Some set up a hot tub, others lit a fire. Police looked on, but didn't intervene. After three weeks, the people of Ottawa, there was going to be 20, 30, 40,000 people on the street just going, right, you're not going to do this to the state, we'll do it. And that's where people were headed. And I think what really scared people was that they were willing to do that. It's not just that they were protesting. People in the city describe a feeling of lawlessness. There was a sense that they were filling a vacuum left by the quote-unquote state, that the police weren't policing, so the citizens did, and that they were on their own. It's mind-blowing for people to think about anywhere. Right. We're, we're, on, we're on, like, failed, fragile state land territory there. Uh, now, we weren't, right? I mean, I think the social norms are so deeply embedded, and there were definite firewalls for how far that could have gone. For Debbie Owusu-Etcha, it was fascinating to see her fellow Ottawans have a shift in perspective when it came to how they perceive authorities. For her, it wasn't new. You know, I am a Black woman. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. I have always been someone who has grown up to question how our institutions show up for us. The occupation itself was given 
so much more permission to be lawless than any other form of protest. And I think people were just like, how could this happen? Um, I feel safe and you, this institution I've been told my entire life is here for me, um, isn't here to protect me. So it was an interesting experience to witness people come to the realization that the police can fail them too. There were few officers on the ground as these scenes unfolded this weekend. And many protesters defied the court injunction against blaring horns. This brings me to one of the questions I've asked everyone I've spoken to. Because it seems many people in Ottawa feel different from who they were before. I asked Zachary Boissonneau if he would have described himself as political before all this. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And so I'm going to say it felt like I was forced to become a little bit more political because I had to defend the soapbox that I was on. And so I've lost a ton of friends because of all of this as well. And family. Like- Absolutely. I'm, I wasn't invited to Christmas this year because my mom didn't want to have me around. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's painful. Yeah. And and I've trainers left this space. I've had friends who I've been friends with for years. But at the same time, there were people who I'm now friends with and I'm now closer with than I ever would have believed because, right, like birds of a feather flock together. And so I've met a bunch of people who I'm going to consider my new family, if you want to call it something. Would you describe yourself as a political person before? Uh, Not before. The pandemic and and all the restrictions, it was kind of a world-changing couple years. And it almost feels like it's catapulted a lot of people into being more politically active, especially families, like people with children. I just dove right in, for sure. Um, And I have been more involved since. My question about people becoming politically active, it keeps coming up not only related to the convoy, but because the sentiments, politics, and even tactics of the convoy have surfaced in other places over this past year, long after the trucks left, like municipal elections and even school board meetings. The chair of the Ottawa-Carleton District School Board spent the dramatic meeting trying to maintain order while members of the public repeatedly yelled and heckled speakers, and security and police kicked people out. Trustee Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth pushed for the emergency meeting to debate a motion on mandatory masking in schools, but after several interruptions, that motion was postponed. There was a lot of high energy, high emotions running. Yeah, it was very heated. Kristen Bennett was at that meeting. It wasn't her kid's school board, but she was there along with some of the other parents from her homeschool group. We went down to that meeting uh, with the trustees because most of our kids, some are still homeschooling, but most of them are back in the public system. And we're really hoping that um, wearing a mask could just remain a choice and an option, but not a mandate. So we all feel pretty strongly about that. So we went down there basically to peacefully protest and say that we really don't want this for our children. It's a shift Debbie Owusu Echa has noticed too. We see that emboldened feeling of folks who maybe were in the fringes being mainstreamed. And that, I think, that mainstreaming process that the occupation 
presented has now created interesting challenges for other political spaces within our city, but probably across the country as well. Everyday individuals, I think, are a little bit more empowered to pay more attention to what's happening in our municipalities. And I think that discomfort that we're now placing on our elected officials at the municipal level is crucial because I think the comfort that they've experienced for a long time has resulted in what we saw in February. What we saw is that many of the systems and the public institutions that we pay into have gaps in them. Carleton University professor Sean Burgess. At a visceral level, I think I've lost trust in the system. I don't, I know, and I know how the system works really well, far better than most people. And I study these systems. Coherent policy response and accountability seems to be lacking. We need to get back a sense of community. And I think that's kind of what we've lost is that, that active sense of Canadianness. Gym owner Zachary Boissonneau also sees things differently now. My city, yes, feels different than a year ago. It almost feels a little more hopeless. Like that felt like our chance to maybe we're going to have a conversation, an honest debate about what we're doing with public health policy. And that never happened. Do you feel different about the city? Um your place in it. Yeah, that's a hard one. I, in a way, I think I almost love it more um, because I've met such amazing people through this experience. So yeah, I feel like it's it's changed how I experience the city, maybe how the people that I experience it with, but it's, it's for the better. It's not in a negative way. In spite of all the painful testimony Debbie heard from residents, she told me her involvement in the Ottawa People's Commission was one of the most rewarding of her career. I think it has absolutely changed my attachment to the city in that it's made me more attached to it because I feel so much more connected and not to say that we need experiences like this to make you love a place more, but community responded in ways I've never seen in my entire 12 years in the city. And I think there's a way that we can invest in that being bold to reimagine a different Ottawa. That documentary was produced by Kristen Nelson and edited by AC Rowe. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The show is produced by Tanara McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And hey, if you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story, do us a solid, hit subscribe, save to your favorites, tell a friend about us, We'd really appreciate it. I'm Duncan McHugh. Jimmy Gwitch, thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.